is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 62 is Jungian analyst and clinical psychologist and professor, Dr. Stanton Marlin in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. After graduating from the prestigious Bard College in New York, he was encouraged by Timothy Leary to attend the University of Hawaii, where he earned a master's degree in Asian philosophy, specializing in Buddhism. He then went on to the Progressive New School for Social Research in New York City, earning a master's degree in psychology, and completed his doctoral work in clinical psychology at Duquesne University, where he recently obtained a further doctorate in philosophy. He began his training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of New York, where he studied with Drs. Edward F. Edinger and Edward Whitmont. He later moved to Pittsburgh, where he completed his training with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts in 1980. He is the founder of the C.G. Jung Institute Analytic Training Program of Pittsburgh and the co-founder and current president of the Pittsburgh Society of Jungian Analysts. Currently, he works as a training and supervising analyst with the Interregional Group and is an adjunct clinical professor of psychology at Duquesne University. He is also past president of the American Board and Academy of Psychoanalysis. In 2003, he delivered the 13th annual Fay Lecture Series at the Jung Center Houston. It was later published as the book The Black Sun, The Alchemy and Art of Darkness. The founder of archetypal psychology, World-renowned Jungian analyst Dr. James Hillman said of the book that, quote, since Jung first opened the obscurities of alchemy to psychological insight, no one has done a book as thorough, as rich, and as significant as this astounding work by Stanton Marlin, unquote. Dr. Marlin is the editor of Archetypal Psychologies, Reflections in Honor of James Hillman, inspired by a conference in honor of Dr. Hillman's 80th birthday. The book includes contributions by noted Jungian analyst Wolfgang Giegrick and philosopher Edward S. Casey. It is said to represent the broadest published application of archetypal psychology to date. He has lectured widely at conferences around the world, including the first international conference on Jungian analysis and Chinese culture in Guangzhou, China, and the IAAP International Congresses in Cambridge and Barcelona. He was a keynote speaker for the Guild of Pastoral Psychology held at Oxford University and has taught at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich and other Jungian institutes and universities. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, May 13th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. So we're here today to talk about your book, but I also want to talk about you because you've had a very interesting life. And I was wondering if you would tell the listeners a little bit more about your background, um, things in addition to what I read in the intro, before we get into your book, The Black Sun. I was actually thinking uh, about the interview, Laura, and realizing that a couple of things that might be of interest, at least was of interest to me when I started thinking about the interview, was what preceded and 
came after the work on the Black Sun. And uh, I had an interesting realization that was kind of interesting. I had some early experiences. Uh, you had mentioned Timothy Leary, um, you know, with Tim Leary and Richard Alpert at Millbrook and uh, with the LSD explorations. And I think that the exploration of uh, the depths of that experience uh, reminded me of the kinds of stuff I read in Jung's Red Book, and for me was a similar kind of process that had to do with a real relativization of of the ego, uh, a real limitation on ego consciousness and opening up a dimension, let's call it the unconscious or the soul or the unknown, uh, the profundity of the depths of what psychic life is about. And that set the stage for a kind of development um, that led me on to, as you had mentioned, to the University of Hawaii, where um, I did study Buddhism and worked in a Zendo with Robert Aiken, who became a well-known Zen master there. And I sat, um, you know, with him and worked on this whole question of Buddhism about the limitations of, um, you know, the static nature of ego consciousness and uh, the limitations of the ego from a Buddhist perspective. And as a result, what was going on in my studies at the University of Hawaii led me to work on a, a master's thesis there, which was on the experience of death in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, and so I worked on that from the point of view of the philosopher Martin Heidegger and Carl Jaspers and Nargarjuna, the Buddhist philosopher who works on the theme of negation, which is, uh, you know, an initiatory process uh, that has to do with moving psyche beyond ego consciousness per se and into a kind of illumination, which became linked up for me, I think set the stage for further reflections on the black sun and the illumination of darkness itself. Well, one of the things I realized when I was thinking about it, which kind of um, excited me, was that my daughter was born uh, in Hawaii, uh, and my first child, and um, ended up naming her Dawn. And because we were in Hawaii, um, I also ended up giving her the middle name of Alohi. Dawn Alohi, and Alohi means in Hawaiian, shining bright. So shining bright dawn is the name that my daughter carries, Dawn Alohi. And it just struck me when I was thinking of the black sun, the shining, the shining quality of the illumination of the dawn of consciousness coming beyond the, beyond the scope of ego consciousness is the name my daughter carries. And uh, I found that quite interesting. You attended the University of Hawaii before you started studying psychology, right? Uh, I attended the University of Hawaii, I think so, before I actually started 
I studied psychology at Bard. I was a philosophy and psychology student at Bard. And then I went on to the New School, um, you know, for, um, let me see, when did I go on to the New School? I can't even remember. I think I went from, I did two master's degrees, Mm -hmm. one in one in Asian philosophy and one in psychology at the New School. And um, and then I was in a PhD program for a while at the New School in philosophy when I realized um, it was a layover on the way to, um, uh, to the, I guess it was, uh, was it the University of London where the famous Tibetan scholar Giuseppe Tucci taught. And I was going to study Tibetan Buddhism. And while I was waiting to go over there, uh, I got involved in the uh, philosophy program and in a Jungian analysis. And when I decided I wanted to become a Jungian analyst, I decided it might be best to study psychology. So I transferred out of the philosophy program at the New School into a psychology program. And um, that was the moment that I realized the the direction that I wanted to to go. Were you a practicing psychologist and then you decided to become an analyst or was it your goal to become a Jungian analyst the whole time? Yeah, I think it was my goal the whole time because I didn't really start to practice until I came to Duquesne and I decided to come to Duquesne because of its orientation in existential phenomenology. It was a an approach to psychology that fit with my interests and uh, experience. And when I got to Duquesne, I started an internship uh, at a at a mental hospital, uh, Somerset State Hospital here in Pittsburgh. And that was the beginning of my practice. And I guess it was a couple years later, I worked um, in mental health centers and directed a mental health center. Uh, and then decided to go into private practice. Mm-hmm. I like to ask that question of my guests because I get that question a lot from listeners is, how do I become a Jungian analyst? You know, what do I do? How do I start? So I like to hear everybody's story of, of how that came to be. But if we could back up a little bit, uh, another question I get asked a lot about listeners, uh, I, I get asked a lot by listeners is about psychedelics and the use of psychedelics. And I was wondering if you would mind telling us a little bit about maybe your experiences with them. Um, You said that you hung out with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who later became Ram Dass and Ralph Metzner. And I was wondering what your take was on that as far as consciousness is concerned. I mean, some people think that it is necessary, it's useful, and others, like myself, I would say, uh, have avoided it? Well, it's it's a, a quite a powerful experience and an experience about which I have very mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, it was truly a very deep initiatory experience that had an overwhelming intensity and uh, uh, it was uh, very important in my own development as I struggled to come to terms with what happened during that 
experience. And I actually am writing about that. It'll be part of one of my new books. Um, and uh, it describes for the first time um, what that experience was like for me. And I, I, I could go into all that, but I guess I would like to also say at the outset uh, while I have many things that might be seductive in, in terms of the potentialities that the LSD experience had for me, as well as uh, the current new interest in its usefulness in different medical conditions and research that's now going on, um, uh, that uh, I am not one to simply advise people to go and take it. It also can be... Uh, uh, a very dangerous experience for some people. It's not for everybody. And uh, I've seen situations in which it has led to psychosis and to uh, disabling people uh, sometimes for a lifetime. So it's a very, very um, uh, mixed uh, story. But in my experience, uh, I was fortunate in being able to struggle through it and mold it into something that was fundamentally of value for me. But I certainly wouldn't want to go on record of suggesting or seducing people into using the drug. Um, the other thing that I guess I would say about it is that when I was uh, with Tim and uh, Richard and Ralph, um, um, they were working or actually had just been completing a book called The Psychedelic Experience, which was meant to be a guidebook that in controlled circumstances, you know, there was a way that based on certain Eastern texts, in this instance, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, that could be seen as a guide to the LSD experience, and it could be uh, managed within that uh, context. But my experience was that, um, from my perspective, taken a large enough dose of it, of the pure uh, LSD, um, that it, from in my mind, it was laughable that it could be managed in any way at all. It had an overwhelming power and an experience of ego death um, and uh, opened up an experience that in no way could be controlled. It had its own trajectory and uh, I had been taken along with that trajectory into the depths that were very, very, very difficult, um, you know, uh, but also opened up tremendously illuminating experiences. Um, when I first took the drug, I guess I'll say a little bit about it. Uh, I took it in a group um, with... Uh, Albert and Leary and others who were residents at Millbrook, which I was for a while. And um, uh, at first, I thought when I took it, nothing was going to happen um, because I wasn't having any unusual experience at all. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, when the drugs started to, um, you know, affect me, it was like... Um, a, a total transformation. All of a sudden, I was sitting there and felt like the world had changed. And I stood up and I started walking around and seeing others. And it was if I realized that I had died 
and I passed over to the other side of life. It was like the secret of death had been revealed, and it was simply ongoing life on another plane of existence. And I was with others, all of whom had, had died, and there seemed to be nothing that was lost, but a sense of a kind of fullness of being, a mystery solved. And slowly I walked around and I felt a sense of wonder and started to think, there is no inside or outside in this place, no life or death, no inside my body or outside. And so I started to wonder then, well, how does one eat? How does one breathe if there's no difference between in and out or life and death? And that thought continued, and I found myself once again in the midst of falling in and out of a sense of duality, where there was an inside and outside and where there wasn't. And then there was like an ocean of um, powerful experiences before me, and I was resisting it. And anxiety grew tremendously, and it was like a pull down into the depths, and I was struggling to stay alive and fought it knowing that somehow I should relax into it and that I had to trust and love in order to die into this otherness that was transformative. And that was an ongoing struggle that lasted for a very long time. And um, I realized that um, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was wondering as I walked around the mansion, uh, Larry and Albert's mansion in Millbrook, if there was an outside at one point. And I walked out the door. And at that point, I looked up into the sky, which was very dark. And I stepped outside on the ground. And I felt roots growing out of the bottom of my feet and reaching all the way down to the center of the earth. And as I looked up, toward the sky, the dark sky, it was filled with stars, and my arms reached out, and the roots extended upwards, and my fingertips touched the stars at the same time, and I felt deeply connected to the whole universe at that time, to above and below, and to an experience that went through every pore of my body and into the universe, and a feeling of, you know, a, a sense of completeness, and that started to uh, be the culmination of the experience. And I started to reintegrate and, you know, return to a more everyday consciousness, sort of dazzled by the experiences and the forces that were at play. So that was just the gist, this the little centerpiece of that kind of experience. Uh, when I realized that that wasn't at all controlled or programmed, it just had its own course in my own ego struggle against and with it until that moment of connection with the deep parts of life. Now, had you heard anyone else explain what they experienced before you had your own experience? Oh, I had uh, seen many um, experiences of drugs. Uh, I used to even be the director of a drug center uh, but my experience wasn't sort of molded. I had read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, you know, I, um, you know, had ideas about it, but this seemed to me to have a course and a power of its own that went beyond my projections and expectations, um, you know, into a new uh, experience of, it, of its own. Uh, 
Um, and on the weekends at Millbrook, uh, they, they didn't, it was just the family, the inner group who took LSD together. But uh, on weekends, people would come up from New York City, a lot of jazz musicians, philosophers, uh, a lot of famous people that come up on weekends. And we did simulated psychedelic sessions from that for them by meditation techniques and listening to electronic music. And they didn't give out the drugs on weekends, but uh, during, during the family time is when the experimentation and explorations happened. So was it just that one time that you took the LSD or did you take it multiple times? I'm just curious as to whether you always had a similar experience or were they different? No, that time was the first time I took the pure the pure drug and it was the most powerful of all the LSD experiences I had. Uh, I had had earlier ones uh, with... Uh, um, you know, they came from seeds that had LSD components. They also had DMT, uh, you know, a number of different drugs that we had tried. But this was the, the most central and most powerful experience I had. And I probably should go on to tell you a little bit about what happened after that. Because after that experience, um, I did end up leaving Millbrook. And um, what happened was that after I kind of regained an ordinary consciousness, um, I had the experience of an ongoing kind of kundalini process that went on like a serpent-like energy, you know, coming up my spine and approaching the base of my brain. And it happened again and again, not by any effort for it to do so, but it was like continuing flashbacks that people describe and the power of the experience becoming almost overwhelming and terrorizing. And um, uh, it was like, uh, I guess, what Jung called being in the grip of a mysterium tremendum. And the experience continued. And I went around and talked to the family, um, you know, at Millbrook about you know, what I might do. And I was talking to Timothy about going to University of Hawaii, but I really wanted to go home. And so I talked to everybody and I made the decision to go back home. And when I did, it kept, it kept happening. And my parents convinced me at that time to seek the help of a, of a psychiatrist. Um, so I went to see a psychiatrist and, um, when I did, I had the feeling that the doctor really didn't have a clue about what I was talking about. Um, and um, uh, I still felt I needed some help. And um, the idea of the Tibetan Book of the Dead remained in my mind. And I was aware of a Tibetan monastery out in New Jersey where there was a, a well-known Tibetan Lama there, Geshe Wangal who I decided uh, he might be able to help me because I felt he would understand the experience from the Tibetan point of view. And so um, I decided to go to the monastery and I was greeted by one of the monks there who uh, asked me, um, well, where did I come from? And um, feeling partially vulnerable and in a painful place, I was also quite inflated at that time and expected that in order to be taken seriously, I had to demonstrate some kind of higher level of consciousness. So I told the monk, uh, 
I came from the high mountains. I came came here for to talk to Geshe Wangal from the high mountains. And the monk looked at me with a kind of odd grin and looked me in the eye and he said, too high, too high. <laughs> and they see right out. through you, don't they? Saw right through me. And then uh, he went to get the Geshe and uh, I felt a bit humiliated, but I waited <laughs> there with great anticipation. And Geshe Wangal came out. Um, he was a small man and twinkling eyes and I told him my story of the LSD experience and uh, going to see a psychiatrist who I said um, didn't know anything about what I was talking about and I told him my parents wanted me to continue to do that and felt it was useless. I expected far more, you know, uh, and then Geshe Wangal looked me in the eye and kindly said, uh, listen to your mother and father. And uh, I was shocked and, and disappointed at his response. But then I looked at him again and I thought, well, what he was saying is listen to your mother and father. And all of a sudden I took this in a kind of archetypal way that listen to the presences of the archetypal parents, listen to the powers of those figures within my own soul and, and listen to the transcendent depths that I felt deeply connected to the direction I was looking for. And then he showed me around the monastery and, um, you know, showed me one primary book that they had uh, been working on and had tea, and then I left for home. And what was interesting was that after that, it seemed to set my course back toward something more integrative, but I still had residues. When I came home, I saw my uncle and I was sitting on the steps and having conversations with him. And I couldn't believe how wise he was. Everything he said made me feel like everybody, including him and the Lama, were kind of enlightened beings. And I listened to everyone as if they spoke esoteric truths and the world was enlightened. And I could learn from every moment of experience I had from contact with others. And so now I was listening to everything with a kind of symbolic ear and remembering uh, about the teaching where in Buddhism, one respects everyone as if they were the Buddha. And this sensibility felt like I was living again on another plane of existence, slowly uh, uh, integrating the experiences that I've had. And slowly then I decided to return to school and finish and began studying Jung um, uh, for my senior project at Bard. And at the same time, with a deep appreciation for Asian thought and for Jung's study of The Secret of the Golden Flower, which was a book that remained with me for some time. And uh, that's when, um, you know, I think my movement made sense to study Buddhism in Hawaii and I tried to continue on with uh, what I had experienced and learned, but now in the context of um, these traditional experiences that now became alive for me and helpful. And, uh, and I remember in the book, The Psychedelic Experience, Leary and Alpert spoke about Jung and William James as two Western psychologists who, you know, had kept open 
both to the advancement of scientific theory, but didn't shut off Eastern scholarship from consideration. And certainly for Jung, the Tibetan Book of the Dead was a, a constant companion, um, as he notes, and he wrote the introduction to it. So there were many stimulating discoveries that started to link philosophy and Buddhist philosophy and the psychedelic experience and Jung, and uh, they were the kind of matrix out of which I then really began to form and develop my own position um, and my own studies. You mentioned the Tibetan Book of the Dead several times, and I was supposed to cover that on episode Q1 with Rick Levine, but we never got around to it. Would you be able to just kind of summarize for the listeners who might not be familiar with it, what the gist of that book is? I know that's a tall task. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, there is a lot to say about it, and, and there's much published, and Evans Wentz, of course, did one translation of it. There are current new translations of it, but it was a book that spoke about guiding people to the after-death state uh, by reading certain things that served as a guidebook, helped them to face what they were exp experiencing in the different bardos, and to go on not to rebirth, but ultimately to the release of the self into a kind of... Uh, uh, transcendence, uh, but it also showed what happens when one gets hooked in the bardo and one returns into reincarnations. Now, the thing about it was whether or not that book literally spoke about the literal experience of death and the afterworld, or whether it spoke about the experience of ego death. And, um, you know, in some way, maybe the two are not so terribly far apart. Um, but uh, ultimately, I think for Leary uh, and Alpert and uh, Rolf Metzner, the Tibetan Book of the Dead was a guide to the psychedelic experience and to the ego death associated with that experience. And then Leary went on and looked at other books like the Tao Te Ching and other things that helped, you know, be models for what in the West we were discovering through, through the LSD uh, and psychedelic experiences. And then a lot of that was, of course, richly picked up by Stanislav Grof and his book, LSD Psychotherapy, and many others, and has become, you know, developed masters in Houston, and many other people had uh, picked up on this experience. And it still goes on to be a question of what value it might have in helping certain kinds of illnesses associated with depression or obsession or drug abuse or things like that. Uh, it has, seems to have many potentials, uh, but I also would not um, veer away from my warning about taking it. And one of Jung's ideas was that while LSD opens up the same kinds of experiences of the archetypal psyche, it doesn't do so in a manner that's um, temporally connected to the natural evolution of an initiatory experience into the unconscious, uh, that it, it, it comes all at once as a flood. And Jung was hesitant about that, while Stanislav Grof, for instance, on the other hand, sees those sorts of experiences as abreactions, as things that can really heal different kinds of trauma, that by having that powerful traumatic experience, it also helps heal and release it. And there's a, an interesting book by Scott Hill that came out, something like Coming to Terms with the Unconscious, who studied with 
Ralph Metzner, that I think is a valuable book, using Jungian psychology as a model. And uh, he picks up this whole question and discusses the nuances of the different ways of thinking about LSD. It's a book I'd recommend. And it's called Coming to Terms with the Unconscious? I think it's called Coming to Terms with the Unconscious. Yeah, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but I think that's pretty close. But it's Scott Hill, and it's on Jungian psychology and psychedelics. And you mentioned that Jung wrote an introduction to one of the translations of the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead. What was his specific interest? It always intrigued me. What was his specific interest in that book? Why would he go to those lengths to do that? Well, Jung explored a lot of Asian thinking, which he was open to. And I think he saw not only alchemy, but initially some of the Asian material as illustrating and exploring the depths of the unconscious. And he had a commentary uh, on it. He actually wrote a commentary after the first edition of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Jung's commentary was included in future editions of it. And uh, it's also, uh, his commentary is in the collected works. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure which volume it's in now, but... Um, he had an interest in that, in the, in the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, uh, in the Secret of the Golden Flower, and, you know, uh, he had a lot of interest in openness to the Asian traditions. And I will provide links to all of those books in the show notes on the episode page at speakingofyoung.com. And speaking of books, you mentioned earlier that you're in the process of writing more than one book um, when when you were talking about your experience with psychedelics. Is that not in the upcoming Philosopher's Stone? Uh, the upcoming Philosopher's Stone is a, a, a contract I had to do a follow-up on The Black Sun, uh, which was um, called The Philosopher's Stone, The Alchemy and Art of Illumination. I still have that contract with Texas A&M, and it is a book I'm working on, but uh, what interceded was uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Leticia Capriati, who is from Brazil, had read my alchemy papers and persuaded me, said that she felt that they were really valuable to put together uh, and maybe publish them as a book. And uh, it was because of her prompts and her interest in that material and understanding of it that I um, uh, made a proposal to Rutledge. Uh, John Mills also suggested that and helped um, direct that. John is a colleague who I was on a psychoanalytic board with and who uh, works, uh, you know, has a a position with Rutledge where he uh, invites books and he suggested that I bring this book forth. And there's a book now coming out. It's just been submitted called C.G. Young and the Alchemical Imagination Passages into the Mysteries of Psyche and Soul. And what that book is, is a compilation of writings that I've done over the years. Um, and uh, I put the put them together in some order, uh, kind of putting together many of my uh, alchemical papers, per, uh, particularly. And uh, there were going to be included, um, you know, with them, my papers on dreams, which is another uh, important interest of mine. Uh, but it turned out that the dream book is going to be 
um, a separate book. And the title of that book I'm just starting to put together now is called Jung's Illumination of the Unconscious Dreams and the Dark Light of the Soul's Imagination. And there I show how dreams also, in a more, um, you know, both alchemy and dreams, uh, for me, work not with the flood of psyche, but with hesitation and slowness, a paper that I wrote as the gateway to the depths of psyche. And there I explore uh, James Hillman's question, what does the soul want? And try to take that forward both into alchemy and dreams in the two books that I mentioned. Yeah, let's talk about James Hillman. So you knew him, you analyzed with him for a number of years. And would you tell us the story you met him when he was in a swimming pool? I mean, how alchemical? <laughs> well, it's sort of, uh, there's a couple of interesting stories about James. Uh, one is, yes, I met him in a swimming pool. It's probably not that strange because he was exploring the interregional joining the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, uh, which I was a member of. And uh, so when I went down to one of the meetings, outside of one of the meetings, uh, there was a break and there was a swimming pool and I was in the swimming pool and there was James Hillman. And James and I started to talk and he had asked me, um, you know, what was uh, going on in there. He was down considering whether or not he was going to join, I think, at the time. And I said, oh, they're just talking about a lot of political stuff or something like that right now. And he looked me surprisingly because I knew James. I had read his revisioning psychology and was very excited to meet him uh, because that was a book I read and thought was so original. It was a book I wish I could have written um, and uh, was very enamored of him um, and uh, um, said to him, uh, you know, what I thought. Uh, would uh, connect me to his ideas. And he said, well, everything's political. Everything's important politically. And so he kind of shocked me, and we ended up in an interesting conversation. And over the years, um, uh, I mean, I decided at one point that the way to further get to know his ideas was the possibility of working analytically with him. And I brought that up at one point. And uh, I actually had a dream that I told him uh, that sort of uh, was embarrassing. It was a dream about coming and lying down with him. And I wasn't sure what it meant, but it had a kind of strange erotic connection. And I told him it rather embarrassedly. And he said, why not come and lie down with me for a while? And I think what he did was to take it up as a transference eros, which was there. And I ended up working with him for quite a while, sometimes in person, but often by telecommunication, which now, unfortunately, is the way of the world. Um, but um, yeah, it was a very powerful and good experience for me. He was so astute in his understanding of images and dreams and uh, the work uh, deepened and I did it after I had graduated I was already a graduate analyst it was after that I decided to do a post-analytic analysis with him and uh, it was very formative for me and then I became part of uh, really I would say the archetypal group, uh, you know, kind of meeting with James and a number of other colleagues 
um, you know, Paul Kugler and David Miller and Higuchi from Japan and Nor Hall and Mary Watkins and Gigerich and a bunch of us uh, uh, all met in a fairly regular way, Robbie Bosnak, um, and discussed issues from an archetypal point of view, discussed cases, uh, discussed ideas, uh, had encounters, and it was a very rich part of my own Jungian uh, and so-called post-Jungian, although that's a term I put quotes around uh, experience. Tell us why you put quotes around it. I don't like that term, but... Uh, the reason I don't is because I think there's a lot of assumptions in current writings that, I mean, many people have made contributions to Jung, have challenged Jung, have, uh, um, you know, uh, but when sometimes they do, they talk about moving beyond Jung and into this post-Jungian uh, idea. And for me, I'm not even sure that we've totally caught up Jung. Uh, so in a way, I feel myself to be not only post-Jung, but pre-Jung and, and Jungian. So I, my work, uh, as I say in this new book that I have, is an attempt to bring uh, my classical uh, experiences of Jung and my continuing effort to learn about Jung uh, into relationship with archetypal psychology and with the movements that have certain interesting differences from Jung and different ways of seeing him. But whether or not we're post-Jungian, that's a question I put in brackets. I appreciate that. And also, that's why I have not gotten much into archetypal psychology. I don't know much about Hillman or speak to archetypally oriented Jungian analysts because I feel like I don't fully know Jung yet. And that's what I've been trying to cover on this podcast. I've been doing this for five years now, and I still feel like I've barely scratched the surface. So I'm still trying to understand Jung and cover Jung before mm. I go beyond yeah. Jung. Sure, I can understand the sentiment. Uh, uh, at the same time, I think one of the things I would say in my experience with James is James wasn't so post-Jungian completely himself. And sometimes he was very critical and had initiatorily, I mean, a, a, a real... Uh, Critique. I, I wrote an article for the book, uh, I think Reynos Papadopoulos's book on uh, Jungian psychology, uh, where he picked a bunch of people who were sort of specialists in different areas of Jung and asked them to write articles. And I wrote one on, um, on uh, alchemy for him and uh, had studied James and with James and even helped edit for a while his alchemical psychology. And there he really makes some big moves, you know, to see alchemy in a different way, rather than seeing alchemy uh, the way Jung did, uh, translating it into a psychology, so that he had a psychology of alchemy. Hillman works more with the poetic basis of the imagistic psyche and talks about an alchemical psychology. So there's a tension between a psychology of alchemy and an alchemical psychology. I think that's very rich, that tension. But James himself, too, often went back to say he was still studying Jung. He was still interested in Jung. In spite of going beyond Jung, I think he was also very Jungian in many, many respects, and that it, it becomes too easy just to juxtapose him. Um, 
he invited me and a, a few other people I remember to present together at a conference, one of the international conferences, where he really wanted to straighten out some of the, his feelings about Jung. And there was an attempt uh, to do so at that conference. Um, and so he would often, you know, speak to the fact when he wasn't just putting forth his own uh, radicality, he, he would also come back and he would be extremely appreciative of Jung. So I never felt that it, that uh, either he felt or I felt that Jung had been completely over, you know, left behind or mm -hmm. mastered or moved beyond. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. That's that's very insightful, and and I you know I didn't know that, so I appreciate it. And let's now segue into alchemy. I would like for you to briefly tell us why Jung was interested in alchemy and maybe though what alchemy is. Hmm. Yeah, that's a big question and what I'm still writing about. Uh, I, uh, I, one of the ways to think about it, I think historically, and I've started to write, I, I wrote a, a forward to a colleague and friend of mine, Sanford Drob's book on interpreting the Red Book. And in the Red Book, uh, Jung has these amazing experiences that uh, were the foundation, as Sonu Shamdasani has pointed out again and again, and uh, the rich uh, uh, presentation he does and uh, uh, publishing of, of Jung's Red Book um, with great notes. And uh, but what historically happens is that Jung tried to take those experiences and ultimately to suggest that they were uh, expressions that required a kind of understanding and expression that fit with the scientific worldview of his time. He felt it needed to be translated into something that could be understood and wasn't just an elaboration that was an aesthetic elaboration of ideas or images, that they had to be made understandable to our times. And I think initially he tried to do that uh, from the point of view of a scientific worldview, which in so many ways was not uh, open enough or rich enough or the concepts weren't um, there uh, in the traditions of psychology that existed at the time to really capture the fullness of what his experiences were about. And so there were other ways in which he tried to communicate um, what it was that he experienced. And in Memory Streams Reflections, which I still think is a great book, even though there's going to be a redacted version of it coming out because of Anelia Yaffe's uh, limitations of leaving things, certain things out, I still think it's one of the most amazing books to read. I've read it many, many times. But in that book, Jung speaks about his discovery of alchemy and its importance for him. And... Um, uh, through following his own dreams and following his imagination and his fantasies, uh, what I would call and do call 
the way of the daimon. By following the way of the daimon, the articulation of his ideas led him into his work that sometimes came to be produced in a more rational form, but still was richly laced with imagery and symbolism and and metaphor, which were, I think, fundamental for, for Jung. Uh, and um, alchemy provided uh, a language and uh, a metaphoric description of the movements of psyche and soul that helped him understand and link his work with the depths of the transformational processes of alchemy, whose aim was to transform a one might say, a leadened personality into a golden one. And a lot of people at times think that Jung simply translated alchemy into a psychological idea, as if it was something that didn't go on in reality, but only in fantasy or in metaphor. But I think that Jung was absolutely conscious that whatever it was that went on in the soul was not simply a reductive psychology of ideas or conceptual realism, that these ideas melded and broke down and deconstructed the splits between psyche and matter and between inner and outer and expressed itself in an illuminated imagination that captured something that went beyond our Cartesian way of looking at the world. And alchemy was a wonderful expression of that transformative process and was fundamental for Jung. For him, it, it helped him, as he said, something like um, organize and, um, I don't know, coagulate. I, I don't remember the exact terms he uses, used now. Uh, but it, it helped him frame his understanding and discover a deepening process. And it was fundamental to him in alchemy uh, took up a lot of his collected works, and there's still more to be published. I think the mm -hmm. Philemon Foundation is working on another one of his works, and um, you know there's still more to more to be said about alchemy and its importance for Jungian thinking. So your book, The Black Sun, um, the title intrigued me. I didn't know anything about it when I came across it many many years ago, and it has been a source of fascination for me. It's a wonderful book filled with images, um, a variety of images, and you include a lot of illustrations, uh, paintings, drawings done by analysands and and you, you know, you write about it and what it means. And so basically you're looking at the light of darkness itself. And if you would yes. kind of summarize what is the black sun and and then I want to talk about the difference between the alchemical black sun and then kind of more the literal black suns that I went to go find, um, one in mm. Germany and then the total solar eclipse that I chased. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's an awful lot to say, and maybe let me preface it by saying the idea of the illumination of darkness itself, or what the alchemists called illuminatura, uh, it seems to me to be a really essential um, pivot point between the negredo, the dark uh, desperation and dangers of, of and horrors of darkness and the 
potentially destructive sides of the unconscious uh, and the suffering that the black sun can bring in its wake and the transformative potential that blackness itself is illuminating if one doesn't run away from it. Not that we can control it by doing it, but turning toward our depressions, our suffering, rather than running away from them, can set the stage for seeing something in darkness that usually is overlooked or negated or let go of or not seen, and that is this illuminating experience. And that is the the actual ontological pivot point which led me to realize there was something more I wanted to amplify and follow up from the black sun. And that is that the black sun really is often seen in alchemy as in a grado experience and at the beginning of the process. But it's also something that's linked to the philosopher's stone. Without the the, the negredo, without the negation, there is no initiatory process that leads through the colors of alchemy and opens the illuminations of shades and colors. Blackness runs through them all, through through blue, through through the yellowing, through the whiteness uh, and through the redness into the rebedo, the uh, the ultimate revivification of life that alchemy leads to. And so the black sun is a matrix in my in my idea, and I touch on it in the black sun, but it also led me toward writing this new book about illumination, which is to pick up on the side of the blackness that is illuminated. And I wrote an article about that that's a transitional article in spring um, publication. There was an issue on alchemy, and it was called From the Black Sun to the Philosopher's Stone. And in that article, I moved through the black sun and all the power of that image toward the goal of alchemy and the goal of alchemy as this experience of illumination, which develops on the the, the luminatura, the idea of the the, uh, enlightenment that comes in blackness itself, not by going beyond it, not by surpassing it, but by deepening, enriching, and understanding its essence, its potency. So I'm going to jump in here. Why is it not just blackness or darkness? Why is it a sun that is black or a sun that is dark? Why are the two together, the sun and the darkness? It's a great question. It's an interesting question, and I'm not sure exactly how to answer it, except that one of the things that it leads to the the black sun is what happens to consciousness. Consciousness has often been associated with light and with the sun. And that sun sometimes is seen in itself as illuminating. But the way the sun and consciousness has been taken up in Western culture and maybe in other cultures as well, is that it does not incorporate or connect with the unconscious. So our consciousness has to have, if it's going to transform deeply, it has to transform illumination into something that takes into consciousness the 
unconscious process or the darknesses which we all tend to repress or to try to move away from. And so the black sun is the blackening of that consciousness. I don't know that we have to think of it as a literal sun, but the image of the sun as consciousness, uh, the warmth of consciousness, the light of consciousness, has to be somehow integrated with the darkness of consciousness, the unconscious, and the coldness of consciousness, uh, the, the shadow aspects of our consciousness. And for Jung, the shadow was extremely important, uh, as was the negredo uh, in alchemy as a process of transformation. One of the things that uh, uh, I'm going to be writing about, or one of the, I don't know if we have time or if you want to mention it, but for me, the experience of the negredo or of the blackening is something that is present in initiation systems all around the world in different philosophies and religions. And there, there's a number of them that I could mention the context of in which that process is active and, and works to work on this transformation from blackness to illumination. It, it's the very process of the transcendent function that's operative in different religious systems and philosophical systems and philosophers. And I've done a little work on trying to tease those out. And it's the first step, isn't it? It 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 is. It's the first step, and it also deconstructs the idea of progress at the same time. In a way, we can look at it from the perspective of development, which it is. And in another sense, when we actually get into the images, there's a simultaneity in it, so that Mercurius, for instance, in alchemy, is both can be both uh, a thought and an image, or a thought and something beyond the image, or both blackness and illumination at the same time, so that the archetype carries the polarities within it and transforms our notion of time. And so recently, when I'm working on uh, the dream book, I I was recalling Martin Heidegger's work. He wrote originally on a a book called Being in Time, a very well-known work on temporality, but then followed it with a book on time and being, uh, where he reverses it and starts to see into time and temporality in a different way. And for me, there is a simultaneity about the deepest experiences of life that can be looked at, we can step back from it, put it into an ordinary causal temporality and see it in terms of development. Or we can see it metaphorically from within the archetypal perspective itself and see it as a kind of simultaneity of differences. And you said that the black sun is a symbolic expression of the ego and the self. And did I get that right? The, because you were talking about the polar character of the archetypal psyche. Yes, uh, I think that the sun, as an image of consciousness, is closer to the ego. Okay. And that the unconscious challenges the position of the sun or the ego with a darkness, uh, you know, with another sun, with another kind of illumination. And that is the shadow aspect 
that can be transformative to consciousness. So Edinger, for instance, at one point talks about the ego-self axis and their relationship, or we can talk about coming to terms with the unconscious as a way of talking about the polarity or the tension of opposites. But that's one way to talk about it. Uh, another way is to talk about the tension as a play of differences that aren't just opposites, but have to do with uh, a radical relativization of our ordinary ways of thinking so that we have many, a multiplicity of conscious images and awarenesses that don't necessarily only have to be put in a causal perspective. And things like synchronicity break into those structures and illuminate at times, bringing together something that's hard to even understand from an ordinary causal perspective. In the beginning of the book, you talk about the danger in bypassing the darkness, that there is an idealized goal in alchemy, but you don't want to exclude, you don't want to skip over dealing with the darkness, that we're seeking that gold, but there is gold in the darkness too. Yes, ex exactly. In fact, the real essence of the gold, I think, is rooted there. You know, without that deepening color, it's not just a bright yellow. It has a darkness in it, a richness in it. And the black sun, Sol Niger, the illumination that's present in our depressions, uh, in our suffering, in our struggles, in our confinement now in life, if we turn towards it instead of trying to escape it, transformation and illumination is potentially activated by the turning toward rather than the turning away from and running away from it. I'm trying to figure out a way to get that point across to people who are not so familiar with this work. So I can already hear it in my head, you know, what do you mean there's, there's darkness in gold, you know, so how can we explain? How can we explain a paradox? I don't know. Yeah, it's a it, it is paradoxical. It can be poetic. It can be metaphoric. It can be symbolic. The best possible expression of something as not yet known. And so, by staying with a phenomenology of the experiences of our lives, we get experiences that challenge the conceptual rationalism that separates things into opposites mm -hmm. or into into uh, things that don't seem to fit together in the same logical category. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little tricky, but I think it it it, uh, it it does happen if one takes into consideration the things that, if we're open to the things that challenges our opinions and our attitudes and our certainties, if we're open to the otherness of other people and other ideas and other cultures and other things, then we are relativized. And the relativization of the ego for Jung was one of the most important things about the individuation process and about coming into a fuller sense of the self or of consciousness. You mentioned earlier ego side, and that came up 
in my talk with Murray Stein in episode, I believe it was 54 on the ego, I had mentioned uh, you and your work and he, he asked that I uh, take it up with you. So would you tell us briefly what that is, ego side? Well, that's a term actually that David Rosen uses. Yeah. Uh, and David uses it in a very interesting book on trans. He speaks about the transformation and uh, the uh, uh, the death of the ego. He has a whole other term that ego side that he uses. I don't know if he coined it or not. I think he might have coined it, uh, but I think that particular way of expressing the question of uh, ego death, uh, which I write about a little bit in that article on from the black sun to. Uh, to the philosopher's stone, there's a section on ego death, and uh, you know it's it's described there. Uh, ego death happens too when one is overwhelmed by the unconscious, but it can be an ego death that is an experience of being overwhelmed, and uh, then we struggle to hold on to the ego, and we end up in different kinds of mental illness or psychotic states. Or there's ways of releasing into it and being transformed so that the ego is relativized and plays a role in the larger consciousness. Um, so there's a relationship with uh, what we call the ego. Uh, these are terms that are often fixed and we think we know what they mean. But when we deepen into them and we no longer hold fast to the literalized concepts, then I think we're into a level of experience that takes us beyond some of the problematics that we have when we're locked into a system of rational thinking. Would you be willing to take a couple questions from, a um, couple of them came uh, through Instagram and Facebook when I had posted that you were going to be my guest this week? Uh, sure. So Nthor1 asks, please discuss wholeness, individuation, conjunctio, as monstrous, not lovely, or tied with a bow? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it's something I actually uh, wrote about and uh, is an important observation. It, it was an observation, too, that the analyst Neil Micklem, uh, a Jungian analyst, spoke about the importance of paradox uh, rather than simple unity, um, which is uh, the more attractive version uh, of the unity of opposites. But Micklem points out uh, the horrific side of the uh, images um, that have a monstrous and grotesque character. Edinger, you know, for example, gives uh, the idea of the monstrous image of the extraction of Mercurius and the coronation of the Virgin uh, in his book. And humorously speaks of it in the context of the Christian worldview as analogous to a cuckoo's egg that's been laid in somebody else's nest and from which something unexpected is to launch and hatch. And the French philosopher Jacques Derrida likewise speaks of the monstrous, that the future is monstrous. And Sanford Drob quotes Derrida's notion that the future is necessarily monstrous. The figure of the future, that is, can only be surprising and something which we're not prepared. And as such, it is heralded by a species of monsters. The future would not be uh, the future if it was not monstrous. Uh, 
And I would, I'd claim that the Red Book and the individuation and the conjunctio and all these things has this monstrous dimension, which is been like a cuckoo's egg that's been laid in our time, so that some of the things that we deal with are totally um, horrific to the ordinary consciousness of everyday life, and yet for that very reason, they move toward bringing the shadow into consciousness. Another question, uh, this is from Tom Butkovic. He asks, how does the soul Niger relate to the Black Madonna? There's a book by on the Black Madonna um, by Fred Gustafson. Yes, he was who, our guest in episode 10. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I can adequately link the two images. Certainly the dark feminine, and, and I don't know if this is correct according to Fred's work. I know it only a little. Um, but the whole idea of the feminine as an expression of what gets left behind, sometimes in Western thinking and in Christian thinking, and the feminine appears as a darkness, the anima appears as a darkness that comes from the depths, and as a result can be a kind of metaphoristic energy that is linked to the black sun, because the black sun might well be an image of the unconscious, the unknown, uh, the uh, uh, that which is other than the ego consciousness. And so all the different figures, the dark figures of different kinds, all, all the different uh, animations of the unconscious play a role as you might say messengers from the depths messengers from the darkness into and up against consciousness and so I'm sure there are linkages for every different uh, archetypal image and one could try to make connections between them but exactly how those connections might play out historically or in particular religious systems or mythologies I'm, I'm not able to articulate. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is actually my question. I traveled to Germany quite frequently. And when I was there, I think it was maybe the first time I was on the phone with my friend, William Henry, who is an investigative mythologist, and he's a frequent guest on the uh, History Channel program, Ancient Aliens. And I told him where I was, um, which I don't, I don't want to say on the podcast, because it's kind of this secretive place that I escape to now and again. And I told him where I was in this teeny tiny town in Germany. And he said, well, you know, you're not very far from this triangular shaped castle called Wolfsburg that was part of, you know, the Nazi regime and the SS. And I mean, it's, it's a museum now. And he's like, you should really go check it out. There's a black sun embedded in the floor in one of the rooms in one of the ballrooms there. And I was on my way to the airport, I, I have to leave for the airport in about an hour to fly home. And so I couldn't go. And so on one of the trips that I made out there, I finally was able to visit this castle. It's near Paderborn in North Rhine-Westphalia. And it was built in the early 1600s. And I was wondering if you knew about this black sun. I mean, it is not the black sun of alchemy, but it's a big deal. And I took photographs of it and it's 
it's kind of a dark, weird place. I mean, it was property of like the princes and then it was uh, the the place of uh, the King of Prussia. And somehow it was acquired by Himmler um, back, I think, in 1933. And there are all these stories about what really went on there. And I don't know that we'll ever, ever know the, the, the true story. But I was wondering what your thoughts were on that black sun and also on the total solar eclipse. The yes. And so that I don't know if you saw in 2017, it crossed the entire continental United States. And I just spoke about this. I had two astronomers on the podcast last week, uh, in one of my special quarantine series episodes where I interview my friends. And I was on the path of totality in Charleston, South Carolina. I also spoke about it with Rick Levine, who was on the other coast. He was in Oregon, um, where we witnessed totality. And uh, I think you saw it too, didn't you? I tried to see it and only had a partial vision. Okay. Here's the thing about the Black Sun. In, uh, the Black Sun was also an image in Nazi Germany. And uh, it had some very concretistic and different meanings there. Yes. And quite negative uh, in the most uh, literalist sense. And so I think it was quite removed from my perspective from at least the way that I'm speaking about the Black Sun and what I'm trying to uh, get at through it. Um, And so, and there have been a number of books who a number of books that have uh, been written about, um, you know, the Black Sun in Nazi Germany. Uh, And so I think that that Black Sun became a symbol for something associated with that whole regime and the occultism of that regime. And it's not something I can, um, you know, fully articulate, but it's Mm -hmm. worth looking at and understanding that at least what I'm speaking about, I don't think could be reduced to that. Yes. And I do want to just jump in briefly also with the swastika. And I, again, I don't want to give away this location, but there is a rock and mineral gallery um, in a, a place that I visit frequently. And I was in there one day and I, it was, I was alone with the owner and I was looking at the Buddha statues that he has there and he brought me downstairs into a locked room and showed me his private collection of Buddhas and he would not put them on display in the store because they have swastikas on them. Now that symbol was taken by the Nazis and used differently. That was not the original. Yes purpose of that symbol. And so I'm wondering if the same thing was done with that symbol of the black sun that they somehow took and distorted or perverted and hmm. now has this negative connotation. Yeah. yeah, it's a great, interesting question historically, and I, I don't know the answer to it. Uh, but certainly that's been true with the swastika. I was aware of that, and the swastika in the Indian tradition has a totally different meaning mm-hmm. than the way it was adopted by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't surprise me if the same was true of the Black Sun, okay. but I don't know all the historical origins of that. Okay. But there are things written about it that, uh, you know, if somebody's interested in that, you know, it's worth uh, reading some of those books. 
Yeah. And then the eclipse? The eclipse is interesting. I mean, I, I think the only way that I would maybe respond to that question is um, that the play between the inner and outer, or the cosmos and the psyche, is an extraordinarily interesting thing that we can trace all the way back to early astrological issues and uh, astrological consciousness. And about uh, right now, we tend to separate ourselves, uh, psyche from cosmos. But I think when we go back to some of the early astrological things, psyche and cosmos are much closer, more closely related. And um, I think Hillman, too, interestingly, when he, um, I recently gave a paper down at the Hillman Symposium, the last one I think it was, in which in Hillman's work, he goes beyond his idea of sticking to the image and he points to the coelum. He points to the importance of connecting images to their home in the cosmos and whatever the cosmos might be. But the idea of the linking, uh, whether or not the eclipse played a role in the early psychic reality and meaning of the black sun or not, I'm not sure, but I'm sure that there is some kind of linking between psyche, soul, and cosmos that doesn't just make these separate events. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you were hoping to say? Maybe just a couple of other things people will notice if they look at my alchemy book or if they uh, know uh, about my um, uh, ongoing uh, dialogue with Wolfgang Giedrich uh, about the role of negation, the role of transformation. There's some essays in the new book on alchemy coming out with that. They've been published in journals, in um, Journal of Analytical Psychology and the International Journal of Jungian Studies, uh, where the very interesting dialogue, unresolved yet, I think, at least the tension between uh, Wolfgang's point and my point and uh, I should say I appreciate his work and admire it uh, and yet have differences from it um, in which the question of whether or not thought exceeds image or how it does or whether image exceeds thought or whether or not between thought and image there's a circulatio, a movement in and out of image and thinking that's very essential and it's essential for me. I think it's essential for Jung and for Hillman. And I think it is part of the tradition of um, uh, the process of knowing and unknowing. One of the essays I wrote, and I think there's a podcast about it from Pacifica on the, you know, the play, the mystical and, and uh, uh, play between knowing and unknowing, uh, which I think is important. And I think it has relevance uh, for the Black Sun and for consciousness as well. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Marlin. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later on our YouTube channel. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, 
play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to William Henry, Dan Joyce, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>